Gospel according to John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 39. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the continued ministry that you have in our lives. Thank you that we are work still in progress, that you are continuing to inform us more and more to the image of your Son. And I pray as we consider this interaction between Jesus and the Jews on this particular day, that you would instruct us, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us as we contemplate marvelous work that you do in redemption. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we jump back into our harmony, we are given here a bit of a time stamp right off the bat. We're told in John 10:22 that it's now winter and the feast of dedication is underway in Jerusalem. Now these two details line up very very well. The feast of dedication was celebrated for an 8-day period and it began on Chislev uh, Kislev 25th, which roughly lines up with kind of our November December uh, months in our calendar today. This is the one time that this particular feast is mentioned in the scriptures. In the Greek, it's referred to, it's called Enkinia, which you probably, but you probably don't know it by that name. You probably know it by its Hebrew name, that of Hanukkah, the festival of lights. The Septuagint, it's this word, Enkinia, that's used both at this ceremony, this remembrance. The word also comes up, though, in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when referring to the dedication ceremony when the people of Israel Israel rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. 
It's also the same word that's utilized to describe uh, the, the ceremony that celebrated the rebuilding of the temple. So both in Nehemiah and Ezra, this word is used to describe those occasions. In both cases, it translates that Hebrew word Hanukkah, and it literally means rededication or to make new again. Hanukkah celebrated a very important historical event that transpired in Israel's history in 164 B.C. Since the last book of the Old Testament canon happens around 400 B.C., this is happening during what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's obvious that this feast is not of biblical origins. It was something that developed through tradition. But the details surrounding this event are recorded in First and Second Maccabees. Now, those two books are found in the Apocrypha, books that we do not believe to be Scripture. They're clearly not Scripture, as I'll say in just a minute, but Roman Catholics believe them to be among the deuterocanonical books. They usually take exception when you call them apocryphal, uh, the hidden books. They rather refer to them as the second law or second canon, deuterocanonical. Um, But note even the final words. I think if you ever are talking with a Roman Catholic about these books, just Go right to the end of 2 Maccabees and take a look at them with, take a look at these words with them. This is translated by the New American Bible, which is the Roman Catholic Bible. By the way, don't confuse the NAB with the NASB. The New American Bible versus the New American Standard Bible. Very, very different. But the NAB, the New American Bible, the uh, Roman Catholic Bible, says this in 2 Maccabees 15, 38 and 39. If it is well written and to the point, that's what I wanted. If it is poorly done and mediocre, that's the best I could do. Just as it is harmful to drink wine alone or water alone, whereas mixing wine with water makes a more pleasant drink that increases delight, so a skillfully composed story delights the ears of those who read the work. Let this then be the end. <laughs> now, let me just ask this question. Have you ever come across any verse in Scripture where the writer says, well, I've done the best I could? And where I made, might have made some mistakes, you know, just kind of understand it's how things go. A little water with wine makes it actually more enjoyable anyway. Just enjoy the story. <laughs> in this, with this we end. You can even tell from the way in which this is described, this does not carry the note of authority that Scripture does. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, by contrast, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. Or even what we see in the passage before us this morning, here in John 10:35, where Jesus says, the Scripture cannot be broken. Or in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5:18, where Jesus says, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. What a huge difference in tenor of understanding the authority of Scripture from reading First and Second Maccabees. Now, nonetheless, First and Second Maccabees are fine as general sources of history, just as we might read Herodotus or Josephus or Philo. They're fine as far as that goes, it's just not Scripture. Hanukkah, uh, Hanukkah celebrates Israel's victory over the infamous king, Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a king that was devoted to Greek culture, and he sought to impose Greek culture on all of his subjects throughout his realm. He captured Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple in 170 B.C. by, of all things, sacrificing a pig on the altar. 
This is referred to as the abomination of desolation. He set up a pagan altar in the place of the altar that the Lord had set up. And he erected a statue of Zeus to be put in the most holy place. Now, can you imagine what that would have done to the Jewish people as they considered this whole situation? They were not happy about it. Antiochus further required the Jews to offer sacrifices to pagan gods, and he forbid them from reading the scriptures. He even went about destroying many copies of the Old Testament. All of this persecution led some pious Jews to revolt. They were led by a priest named Mattathias and his sons. After about three years of guerrilla warfare under the military strategy of one of those sons, Judas Maccabeus, Jerusalem was retaken on the 25th of Chislev, 164 B.C. They liberated the temple and they rededicated the temple and they established what is referred to here in John's Gospel as the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Jewish tradition holds that when they were going into the temple to repurify it, they found one pure, untainted vial of oil. And they opened that up and poured it into the lamp. And supposedly they didn't have access to any more oil, but by a miracle it was continually replenished during the eight days that it took for more oil to be brought. And so as a result of that supposed tradition, Hanukkah is celebrated over eight days and is remembered as the Festival of Lights. Candles are often associated and oil lamps are associated with this festival. So John here, now all this has a reason why I describe this. Hopefully there's a reason. So John here relates to us events in Jesus' ministry that connect with yet another of the Jewish feasts. There's only so much material that John gives us here. We know that he's selective in the material that he gives to us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the Passover feast, and they mention a couple of wedding feasts. But it's only John who records not only Jesus' activity at several feasts of the unleavened bread or Passover, but also at an unidentified feast in John 5, which we're not sure which one that was, the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, and now here in John 10, the Feast of Dedication. So why does John select these moments? That's an interesting question. I mean, of all the things that John could have recorded, he records Jesus' activity in and around the feasts of Jerusalem. John himself tells us what the selection criteria was behind his writing of the book. John 20, verse 30, he says, Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John has purposely selected the vignettes that he provides in this gospel with the purpose and idea that those who read these things might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. And so on some level, Jesus' activity during Israel's feasts becomes important to that purpose. Somehow Jesus is a grander fulfillment of what all of these feasts were pointing toward just as the law and the prophets all pointed toward Christ. This festival had a whole lot of similarity with the Feast of Tabernacles, partly probably because it was so close in proximity to that feast. But, for example, both feasts were held over eight days. During both feasts, they would, they would read um, the Hillel Psalms and chant them in the temple. 
Psalm 113 through 118. And the people would respond as they did during the Feast of Tabernacles. But one really important comparison can be found is this. That like the Feast of Tabernacles, Hanukkah celebrated divine victory. Divine victory. God had once again bestowed blessing upon Israel after a time of bondage. Yet again, God had shown Himself to be kind and gracious and a Savior. So here on this winter day, during the Feast of Dedication, a time celebrating God's deliverance from hostile kings and hostile nations, the rededication of the temple and the enjoyment of God's blessings, we find Jesus walking in the temple complex. There he is, walking in the colonnade of Solomon, Solomon's porch. This area in particular was utilized by scribes. They held schools there for teaching and learning. And here's Jesus walking through that porch area. Certainly, Jesus' appearance at the temple on this day is no small thing. The temple which stood for the presence of God among God's people was visited by He who was the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's nature, Hebrews 1.3. The festival of lights was illumined by He who was the light of the world, John 8.12. Here we find Jesus' last appeal to the Jewish leaders in John's Gospel. Will they repent? Will they recognize Jesus as the Christ? Will they see Him as the Messiah? Will they recognize Him as their Savior, as their King? Well, to remove all suspense, no. No. They stubbornly reject Him. But why? Now, there's a good question. In a sermon entitled, Why Men Reject Christ. I'd like to consider four reasons for unbelief. Four reasons for unbelief which are present in this dialogue before us in John 10, 29 Well, the list that I'm about to give is certainly not exhaustive. It will cover a good amount of the reasons men give for rejecting the gospel. But I want you to pay particular attention when we get there to our fourth and final reason that we're going to consider. Because I believe that it's unique in the sense that it provides an ultimate reason which all other reasons are explained by. Jesus in this text provides us with an ultimate reason as to why men reject Him. And you know when you come to the ultimate reason because it explains all the lesser reasons, right? You're able to explain the lesser reasons with the greater reason. This is kind of somewhat akin to the famous work by Jonathan Edwards when he in his book, The End for Which God Created the World, was involved in trying to identify what is the chief end of God? What is his grand purpose? What is the purpose beyond all other purposes? And, and Edward said that the way you can identify that is that purpose, which is pursued in and of itself, for itself, is the grand purpose. All other purposes lead to another purpose. Like, you know, I got dressed this morning so I could come to church. I came to church so that way we could worship God, right? So each of these lesser purposes are... Leaning, leaning towards a greater or grander, more ultimate purpose. This is why life is so empty when someone lives for a less than ultimate purpose. Because you, only ultimate purpose makes sense of all the lesser purposes, right? You've, you've gone in those in, in dialogues with your children before, right? Where they ask why, and you give them a reason. And then they say, why? And you give them a reason. And then they say, tell me, church, 
Why? Yeah, they say why. And you keep on going like this, right? Until you find yourself crescendoing towards, eventually, you have to eventually get to something that is just is. It's, it's pursuable in and of itself. Edwards articulates what the Scriptures declare over and over again, that God created the world for His own glory. The purpose which lies behind God's creation of the world, His redemptive work in the world, is the same purpose, therefore, for which we live, for His glory. Any other purpose is futile, fleeting, and vain. Only living and dying for God's glory is full of meaning and significance, both now and in eternity. So similarly, you'll know when you come to a supreme reason for something, when that explanation is capable of explaining the rest. You may encounter a variety of reasons that people give for rejecting Christ, but ultimately all of these varieties of unbelief must stem from somewhere. And Jesus gives us the answer here in John 10. But before we jump to that penultimate reason for rejection, let's consider a few particular expressions of unbelief that I'm sure you have encountered and perhaps you yourself once held. First reason men reject Christ is the following. Number one, they claim to need clearer evidence. They claim that what they need is clearer evidence. They claim that they need clearer evidence. Note this, unbelievers attempt to shift blame. They don't want to take responsibility. How often is it, is it declared by unbelievers that all they need is irrefutable proof? And then they'll believe. They reject the gospel because they claim there isn't clear enough evidence. If they had clear enough evidence, then they'd believe. The late atheist Bertrand Russell, when asked what he would say to God when he sees him on Judgment Day, Russell said, Sir, I would say this to God, Sir, why do you take such pains to hide yourself? What is Russell saying here? He's saying, blame lays with God. God has not done a good job making himself clear to me. The point of these arguments is to claim personal innocence because someone else is at fault. In the case of modern atheists, the claim is that God has not provided sufficient evidence for them to believe. In the case of the Jews on this occasion, they're claiming that Jesus is at fault for holding them in suspense, not being plain regarding whether he was the Christ or not. This tactic, if we can call it that, goes all the way back to the fall of man, doesn't it? When God approaches Adam and he confronts Adam for his sin, what is Adam's immediate response? To shift blame. I'm not responsible. God, it was the woman. Wait, second thought, whom you gave to me. It's not me, it was the woman. And remember, Lord, you gave this woman to me. Eve follows Adam's lead. It was the serpent who deceived me. Man blames the woman and God. The woman blames the serpent. Non, non, the story goes. Unbelievers will continue to try to shift blame off of themselves, claiming that someone else is at fault. We're told that these Jews gathered around Jesus, perhaps better translated, surrounded Jesus. And they came with a very specific purpose. They desired that Jesus tell them plainly if he was indeed the Christ. This request seems reasonable, were it not for how it is prefaced. And if we're not, then Jesus knows their hearts. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Literally, the way this reads in the Greek, how long will you take up our souls? <laughs> how long will you take up our souls? 
kind of like akin to how long will you leave us hanging? How long will you leave us in this doubtful place? It's quite obvious that this request for clarity was not birthed from a genuine heart of inquiry. From the outset, the Jews are shifting responsibility. They're saying, how long are you going to keep doing these games, Jesus? Tell us plainly. They claim that their unbelief is due to Jesus' lack of clarity. That's what they're claiming here. They just need him to come out and say it plainly. Tell us. Are you the Christ? How do we deal with this tendency in unbelievers to shift responsibility? I think you flatly confront it by declaring that man is responsible. Sinful man attempts to shift blame. He doesn't want to accept responsibility. But remember, friends, God doesn't allow room for this. Romans 1 should be ready in all of our toolboxes and sharing with the lost. Romans 1, 20 and 21, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. For that we're told, this is the situation, they're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. So how does Jesus reply to the Jews? He doesn't let them get away with this. It has nothing to do with Jesus' lack of clarity. Jesus replies to them, I told you, and you do not believe. I told you, and you do not believe. And we might ask the question, when did Jesus tell them? How did Jesus tell them? Well... Let's just consider the Gospel of John for a moment. We could look at the other uh, accounts of the Gospel, but just consider John for just this purpose. John 2, Jesus cleanses the temple and he declares, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. While Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, many believed in his name and observed the signs he was doing, we're told in John 2. John 3, Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders of the Jews. In John 5, Jesus heals a paralytic man near the pool of Bethesda who later told the Jewish authorities it was Jesus who healed him. After confronting Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because, quote, he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. In John 7, Jesus is yet again in Jerusalem. He teaches during the Feast of Tabernacles. He declares that he's been sent from God. And because of this, the Pharisees send officers to arrest Jesus. Funny, the officers come back to the Pharisees, remember after this? And they go, where's Jesus? And he goes, no one spoke like him before. <laughs> like they won't arrest him. John 8, Jesus declares, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, we had this read this morning, I am. The Jews responded by picking up stones to throw at him. And even in the text before us this morning, while Jesus refuses to just answer that question straight up, he does communicate the truth of who he is via implication, and the Jews do not fail to pick up on this. As they again are driven to the point of stoning Jesus, John 10, 31. And then at the end of the text, they try to arrest Jesus, John 10, 39. We might still ask the question, why doesn't Jesus just answer yes to their request? Why doesn't he just say, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Christ. Why doesn't he do that? I mean, Jesus isn't, doesn't, isn't, uh, doesn't never say that. Is that a right way to say that? I don't know. He does say it at some place. John's own gospel, John 4. Jesus gives this sort of straightforward answer to the woman at the well. Remember, the woman 
said to him, I know, listen, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. And you know what Jesus says? I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. Jesus asked the same, virtually the same question. I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to explain all things to us. And then Jesus says, I am he. I'm he. Why doesn't he say this to the Jews? Why doesn't he just say, I'm he? Why didn't he just say yes on this occasion? I have for two reasons. First, with the Samaritan woman, there was no danger of misunderstanding the title Messiah. Even note what she says. When the Messiah comes, he's going to tell us all these things. He, he has knowledge of all things. He knows all things. He's going to be able to tell us about these things. She, had no, she didn't have the danger of misunderstanding the title Messiah. She didn't attach to it, but it had become so part of the ethos of the Jewish nation that this Messiah would necessarily be a militaristic sort of individual. Jesus was carefully managing how people perceived his person and his work. Remember, even Jesus' own disciples, remember Peter himself says, you know, you are the Christ, son of the God. And Jesus affirms this. He says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has, right? So he affirms this. But even after that, as we see disciples, they still get confused and mixed up on what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. So even the identification that he is the Messiah, you have to recognize, yes, his person, but then what is his work? What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? And there are times in which a direct answer is actually not helpful because it will be twisted to mean something different than it means. second thing that can mention is this, though. What Jesus does in this text is he exposes what's really at the heart of their unbelief. It's not a lack of clear evidence. Whenever Jesus indicates his unique status as God's son, and Messiah in the strictly spiritual sense, note, the Jews are enraged and attempt to kill him. And don't forget what Jesus continues to do throughout the entire text here is he keeps pointing to the plain evidences that have been given. He exhorts in John 10:38, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Which makes a really great segue to our second reason that people give for rejecting Christ. Second reason, they, they dismiss evidence and disallow obvious conclusions. So on one hand, they're saying there's a lack of clear evidence. And then right after that, they just dismiss clear evidence. <laughs> and they disallow certain conclusions from being made. What we call the effects of presuppositional bias. They go into this discussion already denying that God exists. And therefore, what do they find? Imagine that, a world where God doesn't exist. Because they will not allow for the other answer. They're not open-minded. They claim to be open-minded. And they claim that all of us who believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ, we're the closed-minded ones. You see, presuppositions lead to the dismissal of evidence. Those who are uh, in unbelief are blind to evidence. They pass over or reject plain evidences. Note that Jesus continually refers to his works, which he does in the name of of his Father. Why? Because they bear witness of him. They declare who he is. They're not just empty words. They're seen in his activity. 
His actions speak for themselves. They demonstrate who Jesus is. When the Jews violently react to Jesus' words, I and the Father are one, Jesus asks, I showed you many works from the Father. On account of which work of these are you stoning me? Notice, Jesus has absolutely no problem dealing with evidences. He's, been, he's, he's given a super abundant amount of evidence verifying who he was. But the Jews respond in a characteristic way. They just flatly dismiss the evidence. They reject the evidence. They consider it not admissible to the case. They just want to throw the evidence out. And this is where the duplicity of their position is exposed. Because they're saying from the outset, our reason for this is because you haven't given us clear evidence. And then when Jesus continuously points to it, they go, no, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about what you said. The Jews dismiss all the proofs that Jesus has provided, and therefore they conclude that Jesus cannot be who he says he is. And notice, they don't provide any reason in the text why the works that Jesus has cited should be thrown out. They don't go, no, 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 well, that one could be explained away this way. And that could be, no, just, no. We're not talking about that. You made this statement. You blasphemed. So once they've thrown out all of the evidences, then, yeah, their logic goes really wrong. You see, presuppositions can lead to the dismissal of genuine evidence. They can also lead to the disallowance of certain conclusions. You just will not allow a conclusion to be made. And from the outset, these Jews disallow certain conclusions. They've already come to their own conclusion regarding Jesus, so they refuse to admit true evidence. They conclude that Jesus is a blasphemer because being a man, he has made himself out to be God. That's their statement. Because we don't need to get into the details of what you've done, because you, being a man, have made yourself out to be God. You blasphemed. You should be killed on the spot. What's the sin of blasphemy? There may be a couple different ways that we can describe this sin. One way is to say that it's to speak improperly, irreverently, or falsely about the one true God. That's the blaspheme. To revile or curse God. To sully the nature or character of God. Or to assume to oneself the rights or qualities that belong to God alone. And this is what they pick up on. Jesus is yet again assuming authority and qualities that rightly belong to God alone. The Jews' reasoning went something like this. Their major premise, a blasphemer must be stoned to death in accordance with Old Testament legislation. By the way, that would be problematic for them because they lived under not a theocratic rule anymore, but Rome's rule. They actually stoned him on this occasion. There would have been consequences for them before Rome. Their minor premise is Jesus is a blasphemer. So blasphemers should be stoned to death. Jesus is a blasphemer. Conclusion, Jesus must be stoned to death. But that conclusion is false because the premises aren't true. Well, it is true. A blasphemer was commanded to be stoned to death. The problem here is that Jesus is not blaspheming. But they won't allow the evidence which shows the fact that he's not to be even admitted to the discussion. They deny that Jesus is God from the outset. So therefore, if Jesus makes statements such as these, 
He's a blasphemer and must be put to death. At the heart of their error is a rejection beforehand that Jesus could actually be God. They'd already denied that conclusion from being possible. You see, note this, presuppositions are inevitable. Everyone must start from some truth that they hold to be axiomatic or self-evident. Everyone has those. We all have biases. We all make prejudgments. You have to start from somewhere. But we need to be honest about what we believe and why we do and allow those beliefs to be tested. We must call into question any prejudgment that does not accord with the truth. Otherwise, we're not engaging in honest inquiry. This is perhaps one of the things that just bugs me the most about the scientific community today. is They're not engaging in honest inquiry. They're not allowing the evidence to go to its natural conclusion. Because from the outset, they deny those conclusions from being possible. When asked in an interview in the movie Expelled about the potential of intelligent design, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheistic philosopher, told Ben Stein that he believed in the very interesting possibility that some ancient race with high technological advancements might have seeded life on our planet. This species might have therefore left a signature, which we can pick up on in biochemistry and molecular biology. Ben Stein makes a very good comment. Richard Dawkins wasn't against intelligent design, just certain types of intelligent designers, i.e. God. You note this? This naturalist, atheistic philosopher, is ready to admit extraterrestrials before admitting that there's a God. By the way, what's the other problem from here? It just pushes the problem back a step, right? Where did the extraterrestrials come from? In John 9, the formerly blind man is able to see the truth of who Jesus is while the Pharisees remain blind because they dismiss the potential that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But the blind man, this guy, goes like, nobody's ever done something like this before. How can you say he's not from God? You know, he starts with this, he must be a prophet. I mean, he must be from God in some sense. And then remember, Jesus comes and meets this man and gives him fuller revelation of himself. And he bows down and worships Jesus. When confronted with the most obvious proofs, ones that could not be ignored or explained away, they simply posited that Jesus' miracles were just the work of the devil. That's how far it goes, right? And Jesus says this is, this is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 22 and 24. Through 24 a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. He healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons by, only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Confronted with the most obvious evidences, when they're backed into the corner, they still flatly deny that he's from God. And Jesus exposes the illogical nature of their arguments. They still flatly reject Christ. So how do we respond to this sort of situation? How do we respond to those who flatly reject evidence and out of hand dismiss certain conclusions from being able to be drawn? Well, remember a long time ago being told, remember that rejection is not refutation. I think sometimes people feel intimidated because somebody says, no, I don't agree with that. Well, just because they don't agree with it doesn't mean they have a reason. Maybe you should first explore that with them. When asked to clarify his atheism in that same Ben Stein interview, Dawkins exclaimed, It's kind of interesting, a little dialogue here, because 
then Stein keeps asking him, well, do you believe in the Christian God? Do you believe in the Hindu God? Do you believe? He's, Dawkins is getting exasperated by it, and he says this at the end of all that. Any God anywhere would be completely incompatible with anything I have said. Okay, I believe you. It would be incompatible with anything you have said. But is it incompatible with the truth? That's the question. And who made Dawkins the final authority on the matter? Why do you persist in... Yeah, these questions, right? Why do you persist in being so consumed with hatred for the God who supposedly doesn't exist? Why spend your life living in such hatred towards this God that supposedly doesn't exist? He even says in that same interview that one of the reasons why he continues writing his books is because when people realize there isn't a God, they feel a sense of release and freedom. How sad it is, the lies of the devil to make that which is slavery appear to be freedom. A couple of things to remember when you confront these types of individuals. Stand for the truth. Jesus continues to point to his works. He asks his hearers to consider whether his works bear up under scrutiny. You see, when truth is on your side, you have no fear of evidence. Consideration of the truth is not frightening to those who are in line with it. Continue, continue to point to the facts. Just because they reject them doesn't mean that they're untrue. Also, exercise patience and forbearance. Not only does Jesus here demonstrate consistency with these violent, murderous men, but he demonstrates tremendous patience and forbearance. He's called under pressure. Can you imagine the scene? I mean, think about this. He's just gotten done making a statement. They're running to pick up stones. And I'm sure that, they, you know, it says here, picking up or carrying stones. I'm sure they weren't little pebbles. I mean, they're picking up some rocks, right? And they're coming to Jesus and he goes, for which of my works are you <laughs> intending to stone me? You know? He's still dialoguing with these individuals. He's calm under pressure. He dialogues with them. He thinks logically. He's not intimidated by those who reject the truth. He doesn't become hostile toward them. We too must calmly, patiently, and graciously speak the truth in love. Third reason men reject Christ, they fail to consistently apply God's word. Obviously, there are some who just reject the word of God out of hand completely. But there are others who receive it on some level, but treat the scriptures like a buffet line. Most of us like buffet, right? I enjoy buffet, perhaps too much. You know, my problem is, you know, something good about you. you got all these things out there, and you can select what you like and leave what you don't. The problem is, you got to get to the end of the line and go, "Oh, I still want some of that too, and some of that also." The problem, though, comes in when people treat the Bible this way, and it's not uncommon for people to pick and choose when it comes to the scriptures. There's a multitude of occasions in which Jesus rebukes the Jews for this very thing that they're being inconsistent in their application of the Scriptures. They're picking and choosing and twisting and manipulating. Jesus' words in John 5 gives us the general principle. He says this to them, 39 and 40, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. There's a great host of specific situations that bear this out as well. The Jews are more concerned about Sabbath observance than they are joyful that those who have been in bondage to demons and sickness are now healed. They saw no problem loosing their animals on the Sabbath to be refreshed by getting a drink of water, but they object to Jesus who looses human beings from the bonds of Satan. 
figure that one out. The Jews were experts at tying up heavy burdens upon men's shoulders and not even being willing to move so much as a finger to help them. The Jewish leaders were experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep their traditions. For while they knew the commandment of God to honor their father and mother, they developed ingenious ways to avoid helping their parents by saying, the resources I had that could have been helpful to you have already been donated to God, have already been devoted to the Lord. And today is no different. There are people, a great many, who like the Bible for its literary luster. They like its poetic flair. They like its sound moral principles. Yet there are parts of the Bible which a good many believe must either be severely twisted to avoid the consequence of what it obviously says and means, or just removed altogether. C.J. Mahaney asks if some of us engage in scripture deletion like Thomas Jefferson did. He explains, quote, hunched over his desk, penknife in hand, Thomas Jefferson sliced carefully at the pages of Holy Scripture, excising select passages and pasting them together to create a Bible more to his own liking, the Jefferson Bible. A Bible that he could be comfortable with. The Jefferson did things like cut out the doctrine of hell, supernatural, God's wrath, etc. And we react with horrified expression to hear that such a thing would be done with the Bible. But we must beware, as Mahaney warns, that we don't do the same thing. Perhaps not physically, but metaphorically. Where we pick and choose, we adopt a cut and paste method where we ignore portions of God's Word, whether unintentionally, conveniently, or deliberately. When we do, we're guilty of the same offense of Thomas Jefferson and the same thing that these Jews have engaged in. How do you respond to such situations, to such a behavior, to such an unbelief? You reassert the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. You confront it head on. Jesus is quick to point out the inconsistency in these men, these supposed experts of the law. So what does he say? What does your law say? They intend to stone Jesus because he, being a man, made himself out to be God. So Jesus responds and says to them, Has it not been written in your law that I said you are God's? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and the scripture can't be broken, do you say of him, the one whom the Father has sanctified and set into, sent into the world, that you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus here quotes from Psalm 82, verse 6, which declares to the judges of Israel, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Why does Jesus quote this verse? This is his point. If those wicked Israelite judges were referred to as gods because the word of God had come to them and they served as representatives of God on the earth and the Jews had made obviously made an allowance for them to be called gods because the scripture can't be broken, then how could they reject Jesus' claim to be one with the Father and therefore God when he was the one whom the Father sanctified or set apart and sent into the world? Note that Jesus' whole argument here hinges on one word in, the, in one verse in the midst of the Psalms. He upholds here the verbal, plenary inspiration and authority of God's word. He says on the basis of this one word, in this one context, you're being inconsistent. When liberals claim that the Bible is not inerrant, take them to John 10.35. It's a good passage to remember. Also note that Jesus' argument is a lesser to greater one. His argument is this. 
if these wicked judges of Israel could be referred to in some sense, form, or another as gods, then how much more did this title rightly apply to him? Those judges had the word of God come to them, which they were to faithfully discharge, which they failed to do, and God is bringing judgment on them for. Jesus, on the other hand, was the incarnate word of God. He was set and set apart by God the Father and sent to the world to be the Savior. He perfectly fulfilled all God the Father's will. How could they make an allowance for wicked judges, but not see Him as the very and true God? Again, Jesus explains. Note this. So you get some, say some crazy man gets behind the pulpit and says, I'm God. Well, the first thing you could do, test his works. What does Jesus say? Test my works. Look at my works. If I do the works of my Father, then believe that the Father is in me, and I am in him. If I don't, don't believe. John MacArthur says it well. Far from being a man who was arrogantly promoting himself as God, Jesus was in fact Almighty God, who had selflessly humbled himself in becoming a man to die for the world. Yet these men continued to reject Jesus. This last formal appeal to the Jewish leadership in the Gospel, according to John, ends with the Jews seeking to arrest Jesus again. Still the question plagues me. Why? This leads us to our fourth and ultimate reason. Jesus gives a very straightforward answer in verse 26. Here's the reason. They are not Christ's sheep. That's the reason. They are not Christ's sheep. This is the reason that explains the rest. You see, rejection comes natural to those who aren't Christ's sheep. Natural to them. Jesus gives us the divine perspective on their rejection, on the rejection of all unbelievers for that matter. For you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. By default, men are wicked and depraved. They're dead in their sins. They're walking according to the course of the world. They're living in the lusts desires of the flesh. They are by nature children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 describes them. This is not a new concept of John's Gospel. It's just a refrain. John 3, Jesus says, in slightly different terms, but the same principles being put forward here, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Again, John 8, which we had read this morning, Verses 43 and 44 and then verse 47. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Listen, why don't they understand what Jesus is saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and the father of lies. He was of God. Here's the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not from God. No, Jesus does not say, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Those who, on the other hand, are Christ's sheep are identifiable. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. We looked at this in the previous context of John 10. So it makes a connection between all of these verses. Christ knows his sheep. He calls them by name. They follow him. And those who are Christ's sheep Enjoy eternal benefits. Jesus says, verse 28, I give eternal life to them. 
and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Sounds very much like John 6.39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given to me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Those who are Christ's sheep enjoy ultimate security. How is that so? Because they're given eternal life. When does eternal life end? Good question. It doesn't. And if it did, it would be a contradiction of terms, right? Eternal life ends and it's not eternal. If you're given eternal life, it can't end. And note also, you're given eternal life. You didn't earn it. But the beauty of that is if you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. Because it was a gift. If you earned it, you could lose it. But you don't earn it. So you can't lose it. Jesus speaks it positively negatively. You're given eternal life. In case there's any debate about this, and you'll never perish. You'll never perish. No matter what happens, eternal life cannot be destroyed. Note this. It's not that we'll be saved from all earthly disaster, but that we will be saved no matter what earthly disaster befalls us. No matter what we encounter, we will be saved. Add to that that no one will take them from the care of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. If we could be removed from his care, it would... Say something about the good shepherd's ability to take care of the sheep. Those who are Jesus' sheep are given to the Son by the Father. They're a gift from the Father to the Son. The Son values the gifts given to Him by the Father. He's not going to lose any of those. Not only this, but the Father owns them. And as Jesus says here, being greater than all, what God owns isn't subject to theft. No one can steal from God. And then Jesus like sums this all up by saying, I and the Father are one. The Father and Son are one. Certainly, Father and Son are one in purpose to not lose any of the sheep. That's definitely present in this text. What births this? But they're also one in substance or essence as well. As has been said, the functional trinity, the difference in roles within the Godhead, rests upon the essential trinity of the Godhead. Three persons, one God. Co-equal, co-eternal. It's obvious that the Jews get what Jesus is saying. Because here, as soon as he says that, get this. Some people are trying to say, oh, all Jesus is saying here is that you know, I'm, I, my purpose is along the lines of the Father's purpose. And that's absolutely true. But if that's all that he's saying, then they would just be saying, like, I want to live by the will of God. And so would the Jews. They wouldn't have any problem with that. They know what he's saying here. That's why they're ready to kill him. That's why they're ready to arrest him. He's blaspheming. He's taking the prerogatives of God upon himself. This is what they say. They say this man is he's only merely a man. He's making himself God. They don't realize that he's always been God. He was made a man. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in nature, perfection, and glory. Well, how do we respond to that? We just said that it's an act of sovereign God. How does that interact with our preaching of the gospel? I'll tell you one huge way it does. It demands that we pray. Nothing less than a divine work is required for salvation. 
Nothing less than a work of God will make a lost person saved. Will make one one of Christ's sheep. If unbelief is conquered by being made one of Christ's sheep, we see the importance of prayer. Unbelief persists not because of insufficient revelation of the truth or lack of information, but because the natural man loves sin and he lacks repentance and faith. What's required for salvation is for a man to be born again, John 3. Or as Titus 3 says it, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. First, must be born again. Then, must be given a new heart. And we proclaim the truth. We know the Holy Spirit must bring to pass this. And so we'll be driven to our knees, requesting that our Father do the work that only He can in saving lost souls for His kingdom and glory. So here on this winter's day, during the celebration of the Feast of Hanukkah, Jesus walks into the temple complex in Solomon's colonnade. He yet again declares His unique status as being one with the Father and as doing the works of God the Father and that He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. And the Jews respond to all that revelation with vehement hostility and murderous intentions. But Jesus eludes their grasp. While it's not said here, it's said in another place, it had not yet been His hour. It's not time yet. No one would take Jesus forcibly. He came to lay down His life. While these men are breathing threats of murder, Jesus offers them eternal life. While they plot how they might arrest Him and put Him to death, Jesus patiently requests that they consider His works and follow them to the logical conclusion that He is who He said He was, the very Son of God. Jesus' hour was approaching, and He would indeed soon lay down His own life. And He would then take it up again, rising from the dead, accomplishing a much grander divine victory than that which was celebrated at Hanukkah. He conquered sin and the grave. And at this very location, I had to close with this, this very location, the colonnade of Solomon, Solomon's porch, it wouldn't be all that long after this that a certain apostle by the name of Peter would heal a crippled beggar and then be given the opportunity to bear witness to the people on Christ's behalf. We pick up on this in Acts 3, verse 13. Verse 11 tells us this was at Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch. And this is what Peter declared on that day. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He is thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke 
by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a glorious truth to reflect upon this. To think in this same location where Jesus bore such eloquent testimony to who he was and exposed the duplicity of these Jewish leaders that it wouldn't be that long after this that Jesus would lay down his life and then rise again. And that he would raise up disciples, apostles that would proclaim the gospel, the good news of what's accomplished in and through Jesus alone. What a day that must have been as Peter preached from this same place and bore witness to the glory of Jesus. Lord, thank You that You give us opportunity every day of our life to do the same. May our lives demonstrate the change that is wrought by Your grace. And may we be quick to announce the divine victory that is had in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. We pray this in His name. Amen.